us and River Glen Bible Church very, very well. He's been a great supporter of the church for um, a few years. And uh, Daryl's come from recently from Santa uh, Placerita Baptist Church uh, over in California because Daryl and his wife Shelley and children are at seminary and they're working right alongside Grant and Kirsty and uh, and Grant's brother Mark and also Reuben and Verity. So he's one of the team that's over there. And Grant and Kirsty, I know, love uh, this couple very, very much and they're great supporters of Grant and Kirsty, and so we appreciate that too from Daryl and Shelley. Um, and so here's Daryl back saying hi to his friends and family and just back here over the Christmas break before he heads back off again. Now, Daryl has actually studied uh, and got his bachelor's at the Master's College where B is. So he's finished off his studies. He did about a year and a half doing his bachelor's so that now when he does do his Master's study, uh, then he can be attributed or credited the the Master's um, degree, um, like some of us who just had to be satisfied with a bachelor's degree even though we did a Master's study. And so he's doing the right way about it, studying the arts and stuff, which is make, it just makes study very rich and, and uh, enriches life as well and understanding of society and, um, and some of the history, um, our, our history from hundreds of years back, especially in English literature and so on. So, um, Daryl, we welcome you to the pulpit today and, and, uh, and know that you will feed us and we'll see what the Lord has to say through you, uh, to us today and, um, and we're just really blessed and, and privileged to have you here with us today. So thank you. Let me pray for you. Father, we bow before you this morning and say thank you for just the richness of your word as Daryl opens the word to us today. Father, bless him, uh, fill his mouth with, with the words that you'd have him speak to us and let him be true to your word. Father, help us to have open hearts to receive your word. Father, we, we await a blessing today. Let us see Christ in the word today. And let our lives be, as a result, bring you honour and glory in all that we say, do, think, and the things that we change in our lives as a result of what we hear today. Help us to be attentive, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, if that's not the right height, Very nice. Thank you, Russell. Thank you very much. Uh, I cannot begin to tell you how much of a privilege and a, a blessing it is for me to be able to stand before you this morning. Uh, it is a great joy. Uh, I do bring with me um, greetings, many greetings. Uh, Grant and Kirsty, Mark and Denise Watson all send their greetings. Um, Scott Artavanis, who I'm sure you all remember, uh, also sends his greetings, as does Adam Tyson, uh, who has been out here for Impact, and he said to me to tell you that even though I haven't met Ken Ramey, he said that Ken would want me to say hello as well, so uh, I bring you his greetings too. Um, we are very grateful, even though we come from the great city of Upper Hutt. Uh, we are very grateful for the support we've received from uh, this church. Uh, when I first decided I wanted to, you know, I thought that seminary was the right move. I, I wanted to come up here and talk with Nigel and, and Russell, and uh, they were a great blessing to us. Uh, and helping us make that decision. So we've, we've benefited greatly from your ministry here over the years through impact conferences, through various Sundays we've been here. We even at one stage looked at moving here, um, but uh, it was not to be at that stage. So we are grateful to be here. Uh, it is a joy and a privilege. I noticed that it was raining this morning. Uh, I understood that this was like California, where it rained like you know two weeks a year, 
and that was about it. Um, but I think the uh, it's been a wet December back in California, so uh, we thought we might bring a day of rain with us for you. Um, but turn with me uh, in your Bibles to Genesis 16. There's um, you may have noticed that while it was raining this morning, it wasn't a great storm. It was just well, it was okay for, for, for you know the Hawks Bay. It was a great storm. Um, but you know we've seen over recently, haven't we, that really there's uh, an increasing number of these great storms that have been going around. Have you noticed that? We just had one on the east coast of the United States, which went up, you know, in the New York area or the New York area, depending on which side you're looking at me from. Um, and we, you know, that was a pretty destructive storm. A few years ago, there was a man who, who reported his observations of the effect of one of these big storms, these big hurricanes, um, in one of these, these southeastern Gulf Coast towns. And as he walked up and down the streets, he observed there that some of the palm trees there had been uprooted and they'd been tossed about, uh, you know, hundreds of metres away from where they once stood. Once tall and majestic, their root, you know, um, in the storm were just completely taken up. They weren't able to weather that storm. They were too shallow in their root systems. But then he noticed that there was another tree, an oak tree. And he noticed that this oak tree, while it was completely stripped of its branches, that it still stood. And he reflected on this and realised, of course, that the reason for this was that, whereas with a palm tree, and if you've ever pulled up a have you ever pulled up a flax? They are really hard to pull up once they get big. But their roots don't go down very deep. They just get a good hold. Well, the roots of this oak tree we went down deep and they were strong. And as a result, it withstood that storm. It stayed upright and was able to, you know, eventually again in due time, it would produce leaves again. And it would produce, I guess, acorns. Uh, Fruit, you might say. Um, one of the questions we need to ask ourselves though is how do we weather storms? How do we go through these times of trial and difficulty? Do we find these times, you know, do, are we even willing to go through these times? I don't know if you've uh, been through a difficult time. I'm, I'm, I'm probably suggesting that some of you probably have. Uh, if you haven't, you may want to check your pulse. But we've all been through difficult times and we've all experienced hardship, right? Um, but we often, you know, the walking through those hardships and the responses we have to those difficulties are not always the right responses. It's very easy to respond in a sinful manner. It's very easy to flee from the circumstances and the situations in which we often find ourselves by God's design. And so this morning as we read through Genesis 16, we're going to see that this is this is exactly what we see in the story of Hagar. Now, just a little bit of background, as you know, I'm sure, you know, Genesis chapter 12 begins the story. If you want to break Genesis in half, the first half, well, you wouldn't break it in half, but you do the first 11 chapters, talk about, you know, before, you know, the four nations or the history, rather, of, of, the, of the world prior to, Adam, uh, prior to Abraham. And then from chapter 12 onwards, we really focus on four key individuals. And Abraham is the first and the foundation stone of those four individuals. And what we see in, in Abraham is that God's making him a covenant to make him a great people. And so he makes God this covenant in Genesis chapter 12. Just look over there with me. 
And he says in Genesis 12 to Abram, um, in verses 1, the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who curse you. Uh, sorry, I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. So we have here, this, this is the beginning of this, this set of promises to Abram that God will make him three things, land, he promises him land, a nation and blessing or a land, a people and blessing. When we come over to chapter 15, we have a reiteration of some of these promises and in chapter 16, we have this interlude where we have the story about uh, Sarai, Abram's wife and her maidservant and this all fits into the context of this passage. So let's Let's begin just by reading chapter 16. Uh, we'll, we'll read it in blocks, so we'll read the first six verses first and then we'll read the second piece as we go through. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, or as the Americans say, Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between me and you. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. What we see here in these first six verses are a series of what we might call unfortunate events. If you're familiar with Lemony Snicket, a series of unfortunate events whereby things go from not really great, you know, there's this promise that's been made, and the realisation of that promise just seems to be very slow in coming along. Ten years since Abram turned up in the land of Canaan. Ten years, that's a long time, and particularly when you're around 86 years old. You know, if you're looking for a child and you're 86, ten years is, is a lifetime, really. So here he is, he's waiting for this promise, and it's just not happening. And Sarai is, has also got this expectation that she's going to have children, and she's starting to wonder, well, what's going on here? And there's more to this for Sarai than, than what we might read. There's, there's historical documents from this period, or approximately this period, that talk about how that if after about a 10-year period, the wife doesn't bear children, the, the husband has the right to divorce his wife and get another one. Okay, so these are, these are called the, uh, the Nuzi tablets, and they're, you can look them up later. Um, but this, this may be one of the things that's driving Sarai here to think, you know, I've got to, we've got to do this differently. What's work, what we're doing now hasn't worked, so we can't carry on doing the same thing. We need to think and do something different. And so she starts to think, well, what can I do? So she takes her maid. 
and she gives him gives her sorry to Abram and says to Abram, Here, take this woman and take her to be your wife. This is essentially where sin begins. And notice that this whole series of events is a series of sins. Now, not all hardship and affliction is because of sin. But this one is, and so we just want to focus on this one to start with. But here she's committed a sin. She's, if you remember what it says in Romans 14.23, it says, whatever is not from faith is what? Sin, right? And here we have her. She's essentially heard the, the promise of God, but she's not believing that that promise is through her. Now we need to think through this a little bit because if you remember, Abram took Sarai as his wife before he left Ur of the Chaldeans. Okay, So he was married before he came. He was married before Genesis 12. He was married before God made the promise to him that, she will have, that he will have lots of children. Therefore, given that God made marriage and that he was already married to Sarai, it's feasible to assume, is it not, that God intended Sarai to be the mother of Abram's children. And yet she's kind of putting this aside and she's saying, well, it's not working. Essentially what she's doing is she's not believing the promises of God. So God has made this promise to Abram in the context in which Sarai was his wife. That's right, got that right. His wife. And, and yet she has decided that it's not working, therefore that's not what God intended. And this is a very easy assumption to make. But this is where sin begins. It's not a sin of, of you know, rebellion. It's a sin of, well, it is in a sense, but it's not, the, it's not an overt I'm really against God. It's, a, it's kind of a, a sin of we need to make this happen because whatever we were doing isn't working. Okay? Have you ever been in that situation? But it doesn't stop there, of course. We see, um, and this is really interesting, I reckon, in verse 3, sorry, verse 2 rather, Abram's, Abram's response. What did Abram do in the response? It says, Abram what? Listen to the voice of his wife. Does that ring a bell? Have you heard that saying somewhere else before? Go back to Genesis chapter 3. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3 in verse 17, sorry, not verse 17. Uh, sorry, I'm looking at chapter 2, that's not going to help. It is verse 17. You remember there when Adam listened to the voice of his wife, that was the criticism that God had for him. So Sarai didn't believe the promise of God, but now Adam has followed in the path of, sorry, Abram has followed in the path of Adam and has listened to what his wife said. Now, I'm going to be a little careful here, being a man. But there's a lesson here for us, particularly us men, right? God gave Abram the promise. God gave Adam the command. The wife disbelieved. The wife was deceived or disbelieved, whatever it was in these cases, and the husband what? He listened. He follows. So here's that second sin. Rather than believing God, Adam chose his wife over God. Adam chose the words of his wife over the word of God and he followed and his sin essentially was he failed to lead his wife. If you go to, you know, we can look this up uh, later, I encourage you to, Ephesians 5, it talks about how that the husband is the what? The head of the wife. 
So it is, it is God's intention in the family that the husband lead the wife and particularly the idea here is in the context, you know, you think about Christ and the, and the church, there's the picture that God gives us of marriage. So the husband is to lead the wife into Christ-likeness. Okay, not in the sin, but in the Christ-likeness. And so here Adam, uh, Abram was to lead his wife into Christ-likeness too and he didn't do that. And so she disbelieves he fails to lead her and take her back to the word. And thirdly, if you go down to verse 4, Hagar is involved in this as well. Hagar, verse 4, she, uh, he went into Hagar, she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. What happens in this case is that she sees that her, what her mistress cannot conceive, but yet she can. Who's better? You know, and in a culture where having children was everything. Remember we said before that if Sarai wasn't able to have a, have a baby within about 10 year period, then in some cultures back then, the husband was able to leave his, his wife. Well, Sarai is in a, in a bit of a fix now and his, his, her mistress, her, her servant, sorry, her slave, is looking at her going, aha, I've got this sorted. I've got this together. And this is what we would call arrogance. She responds with proud arrogance. It's interesting, again, the word there, despised, is used back in chapter 15 uh, in verse 13 where God says to Adam, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs where they will be enslaved and, sorry, not there, 12, chapter 12 rather, chapter 12 verse 3, we'll come back to chapter 15, then 12 to 12 verse 3 when it says, the one who curses you I will curse. The word curse there is the same Hebrew word as what we get there for the word despised in verse, in verse 4. So she automatically, not only does she act in arrogance, but she also puts herself into a position where she runs a risk of being at the, in, in God's curse because those who curse Abram will also be cursed, right? So she responds in arrogance. She forgets verses, well she didn't know verses like 1 Corinthians 4, but in 1 Corinthians 4, it says to us, what do you have that you did not receive, right? So with all the things that we have, with all the gifts and the abilities, with all the possessions, with all of these things, we have nothing that has not been given to us by God. Similarly, as we will see as we go through this, our circumstances are often ordained by God too. And this is what's happening here in this situation. Hagar has now found herself in a situation where she is pregnant not by her own desire, not by her own will, not even by her own sin, but by the sin of others, and now she's pregnant. Is that desirable? Maybe, maybe not. But the point is, she's in a situation now which she didn't choose to be in, which she didn't have a lot of choice about. And she's potentially in a difficult place, and her response is a sinful response. Rather than responding with grace, and mercy and kindness and to be a blessing to her mistress as she should be, she responds in arrogant pride. Sarai is angry about this and she says, May the wrong done to me, she says this to her husband, be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between me and you. Isn't it interesting that she gives her maidservant to her husband and she blames her husband for it? 
You notice that? But that's what we do, isn't it? When we find ourselves in a circumstance that we don't like, one of the first things we do is find somebody to blame, right? Who can I pass the buck to? It's not my fault I'm here. It's your wife's fault. Thank you, Russ. <laughs> it's somebody else's fault. We want to find someone to blame, right? And so we, we naturally, and why do we do this? Why do we do this? Because Sarai has the same problem that Hagar has. She has that pride, that arrogance, that desire to protect herself from what she doesn't want to be seen to be or doesn't want to see herself to be. You know, we do that, don't we? We, we want to think of ourselves as nice people uh, and so when we find some situation we don't like, we'll find somebody we don't think is as nice and we can pass the blame on to, to them rather than reckoning what we should reckon and I'll come back to that in just a moment. So that's the... So the third response in this is arrogant pride. Abram said to Sarai in verse 6, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly. Now this is where I was going in Genesis 15. If you go to Genesis 15 verse 13, the word harshly there, this, this passage is thick with irony. This is really thick with irony. And this word harshly, Sarai treated her harshly, is again the same word as what we get in verse 13. And, the, and it says there that God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Oppressed, harsh treatment, the same thing. In other words, what's happening here is we are seeing a situation in which an Israel, an Egyptian, because she's an Egyptian slave, remember, is being harshly treated in the same way by a Hebrew that the Hebrews later will be treated by the Egyptians. There is irony, deep, thick irony in this. So Hagar has be, has, uh, is, is harshly treated. Which, And what sort of treatment did they receive in Egypt? It was pretty graphic, wasn't it? They had taskmasters assigned to them. They were forced into labour, which suggests that if they didn't do the labour they had to do, they were beaten, they were whipped, they were scourged. A very difficult life. This is the kind of life that Hagar is entering into here. Would it have been different if she'd responded differently? Probably. Probably. But there's one more response we need to see, and that is that Hagar fled. She left her presence and she disappeared. She protects herself and she runs. And again, isn't that the, situ- isn't that the response we, we often find ourselves going to? Our job isn't going very well, so we want to run away. We want to go and get another job. It's easy to quit and find a different job where people don't know us and we don't have that same track history than it is to stay and prove the work of God in us in that situation. It's easy to often to leave our spouse than it is to work out our own sin and the things that are driving us apart. It's often easy to leave a church than it is to work through the difficulties that are there and be part of the solution. These are the things that we tend to run away from and we live in a society where we have unprecedented freedom and we use that freedom to avoid hardship to avoid the circumstances that God often brings into our lives, not by our own doing, but by his doing, for his purposes. God brings circumstances into our lives, we respond badly and we want to run away. This is what happened with Hagar. She 
as a product of somebody else's unbelief, as a product of a lack of leadership, she got pregnant. She was then became arrogant, thinking, yes, I've got something that my mistress doesn't have. Her arrogance made her situation more difficult. Her mistress then started to abuse her and treat her harshly, and she decides, I'm out of here. What is it that drives that desire to flee? Isn't it this idea that we are worth more than this? We are worthy of better treatment. Isn't that what we, we think? But it's not ended yet. It's just beginning. Let's read from verse 7. She's fled. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. He will, his hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him and he will live to the east of all his brothers. Then he spoke, she spoke the name of the, then she called rather, the name of the Lord who called, spoke to her, you are a God who sees. For she said, have I even remained here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Beelahai Roy. Because, behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. For Abram was sixty-eight, sorry, Abram was eighty-six years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Notice first of all, she flees and God finds her. Isn't that always the way it is? We are lost completely without God in the world but God. It's always the way. We in our sin will not seek God but God seeks us. And here the angel of the Lord finds her at the spring of water in the wilderness. Now, sure... Is if you think about uh, Israel, up here you've kind of got where Abram was, was staying at this stage. Shur is kind of down here and Egypt is down here. Where's she going? She's going back to Egypt. She's an Egyptian. Uh, it's very likely she's, you know, if you remember back, Abram went to Egypt for a little while and he came back with slaves, among other things, and great possessions, if you remember that passage. Uh, it's very likely that he acquired Hagar while he was in Egypt. And she's now decided... I'm going home. But knowing, of course, the, the culture of slavery in those days, it's likely she's from a slave family. It's also possible that her family was in the household of Pharaoh. Um, but being a slave family, there's no guarantee that she even have a, has a great relationship with her parents. Once you're a child, you are taken and you're put into labour because that's what you are as a, as a slave. You're a your possession, you're a labourer, and so you'll be put into work. And so that's likely what's happened. So she may not have a great relationship with her parents. She may not. And, and if you think about the prospects of a slave, a runaway slave was never treated well. 
She could be imprisoned, she could be put to death. If she was uh, found by her previous owner, um, she could suffer greatly for that. I'm not sure that Abram would do that necessarily, but and we will see a little bit more of that later. But nonetheless, she's on her way back to Egypt. She's thinking, this isn't working, I'm going back to what I used to do. It's like Peter and the apostles after the resurrection of Christ. Peter says, I'm going fishing, back to what he was doing beforehand. The current circumstances aren't working, I'm going to go back to where they were. And we tend to, don't we tend to romanticise the past? Wasn't it great 20 years ago when there were no cell phones? You know, and there was no internet. And, you know, you watched a video cassette if you wanted to watch a movie. You know, and we romanticise these old times and we want to go back to them. But time goes in one direction. We can't go back. One day we will go out, but we will not, we cannot go back. And yet again, we tend to want to go back and relive our, t- our times and our old days. And so she's on her way back to Egypt. But the Lord finds her. The Lord interrupts her. The Lord intervenes in her circumstances, in her the new set of circumstances she's creating for herself. And he gives her, he speaks to her. And this is very interesting. The Lord finds her, even though she's far from home, and the Lord says to her, Hagar, Sarai's maid. Now this is important. If you look up and you go to verse 2, Look at what Sarai says about her maid. She says, please go into my maid. She's property. She's a possession. She is someone to give to her husband. Whereas God here says, Hagar. God is addressing her as a person. God knows this woman. He knows who she is. And he addresses her, first of all, as a human being. You are a woman named Hagar. But secondly, he, he, he addresses her as Sarai's maid. So in addressing her as a person, he's not taking on the, the kind of modern idea that you know, people are supreme and that you know, your worth has you know, got inherent value to God. He's not thinking that way. He's still saying, you're a person made in the image of God, but you are Sarai's maid. You have a role which you should be playing out. And it's interesting, God doesn't really rebuke her. God doesn't really say, you acted arrogantly. He doesn't give her a hard time for you know, the behaviour she's given and the, the attitude she gave her mistress, but she just remind, he just reminds her, you are Sarai's maid. Where are you going? Where have you come from? And, the, and she responds and she doesn't deny, she is Sarai's maid. She says, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. She is saying, yes, I recognise my role and I am running away from it. So she recognises that what she is doing before God is kind of not the best thing to be doing. How would you feel, I don't know if you ever thought about this, in the midst of one of those situations where you're in those circumstances, you just want to run away from them, how would you feel if Jesus came and interviewed you and said, why did you leave? Why did you run from that circumstance? Would you, would, you, would you justify yourself? Would those justifications stand before the face of God? Sarai is convicted, and we will see that in a moment. 
God knows not only that this is a woman made in his image, or in, you know what I mean, that it's Sarai's maid, but he also knows her circumstance. If you go down to verse 11, behold, you are with child. He knows the circumstances from which she's running. He knows why she's running. He knows that she's pregnant. And she knows she's pregnant, obviously, otherwise she wouldn't have been arrogant earlier on, but she doesn't know what he's about to tell her when he says, you will bear a son. What he's saying there is that not only does he know her, but he knows her better than she knows what's going on. He's, in fact, way ahead of her. The promise that he made to Abram is now actually coming true through Hagar, even though she can't see that. We get lost in our circumstances, don't we? And we lose that big picture. And it's not clear that she knows the big picture. But what we do know here is that God knows the big picture. God knows her role in this big picture. And he's reminding her that the world is bigger than just her and her circumstances. That God is working out his plans in her and through her. So he knows her as a woman, he knows her role, he knows her circumstances and he knows her prospects. He knows that as a runaway slave it doesn't end well. And so what does he say to her? Verse 9, he says, and this is shocking, he says, return. Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. I don't know if you've been in a difficult situation and you've run away from it, but what would you think about returning to it? It would be difficult, wouldn't it? Because we leave it in our pride. We leave it thinking, I deserve better than this. And when we go back, we have to humble ourselves. And that's what God says. He says, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Or in the, in the Hebrew, humble yourself before her. It's a big, horrible, nasty prospect for those of us who are arrogant people. You know, I struggle with this every day. It's just a fight, isn't it? But yet this is what God is telling her to do. Go back to the harsh treatment. Whoa, 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 whoa. God, you don't want me to go back to abuse. Surely you want better for me than that. Go back to the harsh treatment. God knows. He knows the treatment she's been getting. And he doesn't send her back without knowing that. He tells her, uh, he gives her a promise and he gives her reassurance. He goes, he says, there's a promise there of a son who will become a great nation, right? Uh, your descendants will be many, too many to count, verse, verse 10. But he also gives her some reassurance. You shall call this son who is in your womb, you shall name him Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. God has heard. And so call your son, God hears. She can now go back to that affliction. She can go back and humble herself knowing that God has heard her affliction, that God has heard the difficulty she has experienced. And if you remember in Exodus chapter 2, again, when the Egyptians were starting to mistreat Egypt, what was it that God said? He said, I have heard of the mistreatment of my people and I have come down to do something about it. Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. 
Remember, in the land of Israel later on, you know, they went through one affliction from a different adversary to another adversary to another one to another one. And each time they would cry out to God and in Nehemiah 9 it says, God heard their affliction. God hears the affliction that we are going through. What do we do with that affliction though? First of all, if God hears the affliction, we can go back to the character of God and know that if he hears it, he will do something about it. We've been singing this morning that God is faithful. What does that mean when you're in affliction? Well, it means that God will help you endure it. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you have not endured anything except that which is common to man and he is faithful and he will not let you suffer beyond what you can handle but will provide a way of escape. Not a fleeing way of escape. God doesn't want us to flee. God wants us to find our solace in him, to find our strength in him, to be built up and founded in Christ so that he is our strength. We know too that not only is he he faithful and will help us, but he is just. He will do justice to the people who are afflicting us. Did he not do justice to Egypt? Egypt who God had planned all of that and he showed his power you know, for Israel against Egypt and he did it over and over again. You go through David, you go through many of the judges and over and over God judges the nations that afflict his people. And so we can entrust God to judge these people. If you're in a situation which has not been brought about by your doing, we can trust that God will judge because he hears that affliction. Romans 12.9 says to leave room for the wrath of God. But yet so often we want to take, our, you know, take the justice that we think is due and we want to be judge, jury and executor of that justice. So we take things into our own hands. By leaving I will cause some pain. By leaving, I will cause some discomfort. They'll have to hire somebody new. My husband will have to figure it out on his own. What will he do without me? My wife, she won't, she, she'll, she'll appreciate me when I'm gone. We want to cause a little bit of affliction of our own so that we, you know, we feel that they've been judged and they know they've been judged by us because our standards, of course, are the ones that we think matter the most. But yet, if we are going to be faithful in the circumstances in which God has put us, We need to entrust justice to God. The people afflicting us. Doesn't Jesus say, pray for those who persecute you? We need to be praying for the people who are causing difficulty for us, that God will judge them, but more so that Christ will be honoured in them by their salvation. This This requires a huge change of mindset. This requires that we humble ourselves before God. That wives, as it says in Ephesians 5, submit to your husbands. That husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and he gave himself for her. That children obey your parents. That in a church, it says in Hebrews 13, 17, submit to those who who are over you in the Lord and make this a joy for them. In so many of the situations of our lives, we are called to be humble. And yet in the free world we live in, we take that freedom and use it as a reason to not humble ourselves. Hagar has no prospects and it's difficult for her to do either thing. 
but he sends her back and she goes. She goes trusting God, leaving judgment in God's hands. And look at her response in verse 13. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. For even have I even remained alive here after seeing him. She is recognising her fleeing is not honouring to God. Her running away doesn't honour him. She recognises at the same time that this is holiness she is confronted with. And she is humbled by that. She is in awe of God and she's saying, I have seen God and I've lived. And so she calls God, you are a God who sees. Or in the Hebrew, El Roy. You are a God who sees. She takes comfort in God, the fact that he sees her, the fact that he knows every element of her life, that, she, that God knows the circumstances in which she finds herself and yet he calls her to go back. He calls her to humble herself. And therefore the name of that well was Be'alahai Roy. So what happened in this case? How did this end? There was justice done. Was it that, you know, did... Did this all end out well for Hagar? Well, verses 15 and 16 tell us, and this is again very interesting, so Hagar bore Abram a son. Just count the number of times you hear Hagar's name in these verses. Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called this name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Remember in chapter 6, verse 2, Sarai said, Have my maidservant... Perhaps I will, I will obtain children through her. But at the end of the story here, it's not Sarai's child that Hagar bears. It's, it's Hagar's child. She's gone from being the slave, the maidservant, with no rights, no property, to being a woman in her own right, recognised alongside of Abram, and bearing this child, which is Abram's child. She humbles herself and goes back and is exalted. And that's the way it works, isn't it? But she humbles herself and she is exalted. She goes from being this person who is just property and is not even addressed by name by her mistress to being somebody who God puts there alongside Abram and three times says, Hagar bore this child, not Sarai, but Hagar. But was justice done? Was she right to trust God as she went back? Well, it's interesting, in Hebrews chapter 11, as I'm sure you know, Hagar's name appears in the hall of faith, that, that, that hall of all those people who demonstrate great faith and trusting in God. Interesting, isn't it, that in this passage, this starts by her not trusting God, but she's mentioned there. So it looks like she gets to go to heaven. Well, where's the justice in that, you might say? Well, here's the justice. In Romans chapter 3, in verse 21, it says there that God passed over all the former sins that had happened all through the Old Testament and placed them where? On Christ. So in Christ, justice was done for Hagar's enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. That the, that the glory of God may shine through, that, that Christ may be seen in them, that his work may be shown in her and that he be glorified by his grace. 
the one afflicting her ended up among the heroes of the faith because the punishment that she deserved was put on Christ and justice was done. Hagar was right to trust in this God who sees her. Hagar was right to go back. Hagar was right to endure the affliction, to humble herself and, and under her, made her, her, her mistress and, and endure that punishment. She would have got a whipping for going back. But she was right to trust, to trust all of that to God because God did justice in Christ. How much more today? When we have difficulties with our believing spouse or we have difficulties between believers in our church, should we be saying, Christ has already taken the punishment for that person. Christ, moreover, has taken my punishment. How much more should I forgive them for all the things I have been forgiven? Do you know what the missing ingredient is? It's that thing we see there in verse 13. It's that awe of God. It's that fear of God. The beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. When we don't have that fear of God, our sin means nothing. We, we, we think of it as little things. But with the fear of God, this becomes a much bigger issue and we were much easier, it's going to be much easier for us to forgive. It's going to be much easier for us to stay in those circumstances because after all, you know, the reason we flee circumstances is because we think we're worthy of better. But the reality is we're not. The reality is we're worthy of what? Condemnation, right? And yet, by staying in these circumstances, and this isn't one of those flagellation things, but this is just a thing to say, you know, we are worthy of far worse than we endure in this life. And yet the result of what we will get is far greater. In fact, it says in Romans 8 that these things are not even worth comparing because the distinction between them is just so great. How much more should we stay in the circumstances in which we're in? Should we forgive those who afflict us? Should we endure and trust in God through the circumstances in our life? God is faithful. God is trustworthy. And he is just. And through Christ, we can trust him to do justice for those who are his, and through his mercy and justice, we, we entrust those who don't know him to him as well. Pray with me. Father, we are a people, as Isaiah said, of unclean lips. We are a people who have dirty hands and dirty feet and dirty minds. And Lord, we are unworthy of your mercy and yet you have poured it out to us you have shown us so much kindness. You have offered Christ, your own son, as propitiation, as a satisfaction against your wrath that we deserved. And yet, Lord, in this life, it is so hard to walk humbly. Our flesh fights us. Our freedom provides opportunities to change our circumstances. And Lord, yet... You call us to endure. You call us even to affliction, as it says in First Thessalonians. We pray, Lord, that you will work in us, that you will give us a willingness to go through difficult circumstances. Not only this, that we will consider it joy because we know that through these difficult circumstances, you are working Christ-likeness into us. And Lord, may you build us into a people who are pleasing to you, 
a fragrant aroma by your grace and by your grace alone for there is nothing that we are worthy of in this but only by your grace can we stand before you at all. So we give you thanks and we ask for your blessing upon this week, upon our minds as we think on these things and help us Lord to live as people who fear you and walk humbly before you through whatever circumstances we may happen to find ourselves in. For your glory and your namesake. Amen.